I feel like it's always a work in progress and the things that I do when I'm in a good space, when I am in balance are going to be so essential when I'm not, because that's going to be the time where I'm going to be like, I'm going to be grasping. I'm going to be fighting reality, you know, and then there's going to be that small voice in the back of my head. That's like, wait, wait, you know, radical acceptance. Maybe you're not there right now, but we're going to kind of just keep thinking about that. Um, you know, giving myself hope that I, I will have a life worth living. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives, in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. You are all in for an amazing interview today with Caitlin Billings. Caitlin is a licensed clinical social worker in the state of California. Caitlin specializes in deep trauma therapy and is pursuing EMDR therapy certification. And she is now an author of the book, in our blood so we're really excited to be talking about this book and it's a memoir so we get to learn a lot about memory about caitlin in her memoir i know i did and we'll get to learn more about you here so welcome caitlin thank you so much i'm so excited to be here uh this is a podcast i've been really looking forward to it is definitely one that's going to uh relate we were talking just before i've been uh, starting the interview that a lot of people will relate to different aspects of your story in different ways, because you've definitely had quite a dense, dense life in a very short, short amount of years. You're a young mom of uh, two therapists and you've been through so much. So um, I'm just happy that you are here and you agreed to share your story a little bit here. So tell us first a little bit about you. Where are you? Where you live? Where did you grow up? and then we'll dive into the conversation. Yeah, so I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and I grew up um, in Humboldt County, uh, which is very north, very Northern California. It's the land of redwoods and mist and fog. Um, and that really shaped me. Yeah, I, I was very exposed to nature and um, you know the elements and San Francisco was like the big city. Um, and so it's interesting to live here now, although I live in a very small town. Um, yeah, and I'm a therapist, I am an author, and I'm really working toward blending together my work as a therapist as well as my my writing life so that the two, while they are two entities, they're also connected. And then aside from that, then the also this other big part of your life being a, a mother, of course, of two. Yes. So yes. Uh, how do you blend therapy, author, <laughs> and parenthood <laughs> all about? And how long did it take you to write your memoir? It's been about 10 years in the <sighs> making. Um, but I would say like the it's really been the last five years, four years that 
I've really pursued having it published. That first six years was really um, a lot of writing groups, critiquing other people's chapters there. They critiqued mine. Um, I went through a process of learning how to write a memoir. Um, so I did it backwards. I, I wrote it and then I learned about it and it was like, oh crap, I have to like rewrite this because <laughs> now I understand. So that was a big part of it. Um, and then as I was writing the memoir, life just kept, kept happening. So part one of my memoir was actually supposed to originally be the memoir. And then part two is everything that happened while I was writing it. So that's kind of why it took so long. No, and it is, it is like what we were talking about. It's like a very dense story. And I was telling you that I had to actually put it down for a little bit because it was so much. Um, and for someone reading this, this is something that you will be able to relate in different aspects of it in some shape or form. For me, of course, that aspect of even motherhood, I could relate in that chapter of your of your life there. Um, and then, but uh, but yeah, but just be, be, be prepared to know that you might have to also take some some breaks because it is, if it's something there that relates to your own life, uh, which I'm sure there are a lot that will find that, um, you'll have to also have grace for yourself and be okay to put it down for a minute to then take on. Because So how did you have grace with yourself as you were writing this? And we'll talk a little bit more, of course, about your life um, snippets mm -hmm. so that people still mm -hmm. read the memoir. <laughs> but um, yeah, how did you have grace with yourself as you're writing this, as you're uncovering all these different layers of your life as you're writing? Yeah, well, I was in therapy the entire time that I was writing the book and my therapist really helped me. Um, she would she would actually read some of the, the drafts that I wrote, like small drafts, um, and then we would break it down in therapy. So a lot of the exploring that I did of my early life was simultaneously done with therapy. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I learned I had to take breaks. Uh, a lot of a lot of the writing in the first few years could at times had a very feverish, uh, obsessive kind of quality to it that has, I think, to do with um, my mental health condition. Where you were. Um, yeah. And so I think I learned to give myself grace. I learned that actually, if I'm starting to feel very obsessive about it, it's time to put it away for a little while. So, you know, my, my journey has really been about balance. It's been about um, self-acceptance. And I think that's one of the pieces, right? Is like, if I'm, if I'm obsessing over something, I'm probably not in the present moment, I'm probably not very balanced. And I, I may not be like attending to myself as a person who has needs. So let's go into that. What then do you do to then realize, and we'll talk about the aspect of you being diagnosed with bipolar disorder when you were already a therapist, correct? Yes. 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 So we, can you please go into some of these tools that you use then when you start noticing yourself as a therapist, wait a minute, I'm kind of getting out of whack as you know, I'm kind of going out of whack. How do you then rebalance yourself? Yeah, that is a really good question. And it's something that I'm, I think it's going to be a lifelong focus for me. Um, so in the past balance was really, really tough for me to achieve and resulted in kind of multiple, um, both 
what is considered a hypomanic episode, which is kind of a smaller mania. It's not the, you know, it's, I, I wasn't hallucinating. I wasn't thinking that I was, you know, um, Mary. <laughs> I wasn't having religious um, preoccupation. Um, but I was, uh, I do tend to take on a lot. Like when I'm feeling good, I have a lot of ideas and they all seem to fit together and I, I generate things very quickly. Um, so what happens though, is that I do that and then I don't attend to myself and then I crash. And really it's the depressive episodes that are, are the most problematic for me. If I could be hypomanic all the time, I would totally like hang out but, Yeah, but how do you sustain <laughs> being hypomanic, right? All right, the time, right? Because right. it's like the body's gonna have to give at some point, right? So- uh... Totally, yeah. Yeah, so, so I've learned, you know, I, as I've grown as a therapist, I really believe that if I'm going to be supporting someone or offering interventions or sitting with them through their process, I have to walk the walk. Like I can't go in and be like, you should use your five senses and be in the moment and take a walk. And then I go home and I take a three hour nap and I'm, I'm like depressed and feeling like I can't go on. You know, like that's, that is not that to me, that doesn't feel healthy. And so a lot of what I do with my clients, I'm also doing for myself. And I actually happen to work with clients who have some similar um, aspects to my own mental health journey. And I, I think that it's, it's really appropriate because I, I'm not intimidated or scared when they're telling me about these really dark things that they're thinking about. Um, in fact, I feel very grounded. I feel very able to be present. And to answer your question, I, um, so exercise is very important. I, I can have grandiose ideas about, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to do what, whatever, but I'm, I really. Bite sizes, bite sizes, exactly. bite size. <laughs> so I'm really, I'm, I'm taking it. Yeah. Bite sizes of like listening to my body, first of all. What does my body need today? Oh, maybe it just needs like 20 minutes of yin yoga. Like that's that's really where I'm at today. And that's a practice that I've recently discovered, which is very contemplative and slow and internal, kind of meditative. And then there's other days where I can feel that I really need cardio, I need to take a walk. And I live in a town that has like enormous hills. So it's it's very cardio walk. It's not just a stroll. <laughs> And strength, because if you're going up hills, you're doing yes. some good leg workout, good yeah. glute workout there. <laughs> yeah. And then also just um, practicing radical acceptance. That's mm. something I talk to my clients about a lot. And it really fits in with grief because in order to move through grief, you have to get into reality. And in grief, that's part of it is we fight the reality of what has happened we bargain, we deny that it's happened, we say it's not fair, we, um, you know, get caught up in, in the, the horrible parts of what has happened, but we can't move forward because we're trying to push it away. So for me, I'm all like, I probably talk to myself about radical acceptance every day, at least once a day, uh, either because I'm talking to a client about it or I'm in a, in a space where I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I feel a little overwhelmed right now. Or, ah, oh, yeah, I had a really intense interaction with somebody and I can feel my stuff come up. And some of that is just human. 
and some of that is related to my own trauma. So I have to um, make space for that. Otherwise, it just accumulates and then it contributes to my mental health condition. So it's, it's very, very important that I practice radical acceptance. I do a lot of mindfulness work in a way that is not like, I don't sit down and meditate, but mindfulness is just throughout my day. And I do take, I'll take like a two minute, just sit in my chair in my office and breathe. Or when I come home, I'll just kind of sit on my bed and like, okay, ground and center. Being present. Being yeah, present. Be yeah, present. Being present. Be with my family. Or if I can't, like, if I'm like, uh, I need something, I'll, I'll take a shower because like the water is very soothing and cleansing to kind of just metaphorically wash the ick mm. off. Um, but it's a work in progress. You yeah. know, I, I'm also in a space right now where there's not a lot of grief in my life. There's actually a lot of openness and fluidity and excitement. Um, but I know it will come because that's part of being human. We're, we are going to suffer. And the longer we are alive, the more suffering we will encounter because we will start to lose people. We will, you know, things happen. Mm -hmm. We don't live in a, a protective bubble. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I feel like it's always a work in progress. And the things that I do when I'm in a good space, when I am in balance, are going to be so essential when I'm not. Because that's going to be the time where I'm going to be like, I'm going to be grasping. Yes. I'm going to be fighting yes. reality, you know, and then there's going to be that small voice in the back of my head. That's like, wait, wait, you know, radical acceptance. Maybe you're not there right now, but we're going to kind of just keep thinking about that. Um, you know, giving myself hope that I, I will have a life worth living. Oh, what you said is so important because you mentioned about the parts of when you're in a good space, that's when you do actually most of the work so that when you are in those moments of, really losing you know grip with life yes. that you said like you barely like how are you going to feel like you want to go on a walk when you're like barely even getting out of bed right those right. moments in our life that we go through in this but because we've done all these other things beforehand when we are quote unquote in that balanced state or kind of stable state because balance i don't know if it really does exist <laughs> Totally. Right. Yeah, it's a buzzword. <laughs> yes, it's a buzzword, but really does it. There's really uh, yeah. something gives or takes really almost always. Um, yes. So, uh, <laughs> but in those states in which we're more in that stable state or when there may be not or is not that much grief, like you said, in this particular moment of life, that's when you're like, okay, I'm preparing. I'm gathering all these tools so that when I go camping, I'm prepared for which you know, you know, the start of fluid, the this, the that, like you're just gathering the tools in those moments of that you're going to need them. So, um, and like you said, you have these little voices then in your head that are there in that background because you've already prepared yourself for that. And it's your own, your own voices telling you, okay, you got this, you got this, just breathe today. That's all you need. And yep. so, so that's, that's awesome. Thank you for those tips. Oops. Yeah. the microphone yeah. let, and if you let, don't have it yeah that it's okay yes you know, and if you don't you're yeah. going to be okay and it's okay to feel all the feelings and all the feelings and you know that something that i i want to touch in uh, now is yes. the part of you um of your discovery of your diagnosis how did that come about 
um, we were talking about how grief really that you had experienced early on in your life and trauma kind of just resurfaced later on in your life. Could we talk a little bit about that, please? And then of yes. your diagnosis and how, how you coped even for that reality being yeah. a therapist yourself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did grow up um, with some, you know, various traumas. I, I think we all, nobody grew up perfectly, right? So we all have trauma from, from childhood. Um, and my particular trauma um, kind of set the stage. I had a lot of feelings of abandonment um, and that it kind of predicted some of the, the situations that I got into as a young adult that um, just yeah, that were more difficult for me to handle. Um, I was I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 18. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I, I, I think I experienced a true depressive episode um, that resulted as well in an eating disorder. So those, those were kind of two things that happened um, in my late teens, early 20s. Um, however, the way I dealt with it, which is, I think it was incredible, is I um, I was pursuing like sociology, psychology in college. And then I realized I was taking a dance class and I was like, if I'm going to survive my life, I have to do, I have to move. I have to do dance. I wasn't a dancer. I had no like, <laughs> I had no traditional training. Really? When yeah. I was reading that in your, in your bio, I just assumed that maybe that that's the reason you went into movement kind of therapy because maybe you had, had, but not. No. So it was a very, um, holistic dance program Beautiful. and we focused a lot on somatics on the body on, you know, uh, all the, yeah, so much. Mm -hmm. And part of um, the curriculum was that we created dances and we created dances about significant universal events that happened to us. And so I did that for four years and I felt great by the end of that. Like it, I graduated from college. I really started to feel like myself again. Yes, things had changed. Like I, I was still carrying some of the eating disordered behavior that that really didn't abate for a long time. But I was much more stable. Um, and I moved back to California, met my husband. We had two kids kind of in a whirlwind. It was also at around 9-11. So things just were really chaotic. It felt like the world was ending. We were like, we've got to get married and maybe have a baby, which is a really weird response, but we were very young. <laughs> isn't that when, isn't that when a lot of times people did right before they went to the war, a lot of marriages like, right before they went and let's get married yeah. before I leave. And I need to leave a legacy before I leave this world. Yes, and be yes. Yeah. And so things went really well. I went to graduate school. He got a teaching credential. We moved back to the San Francisco Bay area and we started our careers and we had these two little kids and life was going really well. Um, and I started my therapy career and um, I had an incident where I was held up at gunpoint um, very unexpectedly. It was sort of, like I was chasing my dog in the dark. He ran out of the house and um, I chased him quite a ways into a neighborhood that was unsafe. And um, I was almost back to my house and I just felt like, okay, there's something behind me. Like I just, you know, that intuition, that feeling that you have. Um, and I turned around and it was a person with a gun pointing it at me. And I was very confused. And it was just like this moment of, like you're doing one thing and you think you're in one reality and then in an instant 
everything changes, like everything. And so suddenly my life was literally right there in front of me and that it could be uh, eliminated at any second. Um, and so I, I, anyway, what ended up happening is that I kind of caught a moment where the um, person's attention was not on me and I took that opportunity to run. And fortunately, um, they didn't pursue us. Uh, I think they probably ran and um, nobody was hurt. My dog wasn't hurt. I wasn't hurt. We both came home. <laughs> dog ran after me. Um, yeah, yeah, I hoping he'd never escaped again after that. That's right, like, gosh, right. that is traumatic. Yeah, right, right. And and that is that is an intense part of the book. And I and I do share that in that, you know, yeah, I'm giving a lot of details, but I think it's important to understand like these, even these things that many people go through, like many people are mugged or many people encounter gun violence, um, that it's, it is so traumatic mm. or can be. And so for me, because I had this trauma, my, my past trauma, Previous. and then I also had this history of depression, um, it set off this cascade of symptoms. And suddenly I felt like I was back in my, my late teens when some significant traumas had happened. And suddenly um, I, I, I basically was falling apart from PTSD symptoms and what felt like depression, but it felt even darker and bigger than that. So I um, was put on an antidepressant and basically had a breakdown because um, the medication wasn't appropriate for me, but nobody knew that. And I ended up um, being hospitalized and then received a kind of preliminary bipolar diagnosis, which was then kind of, um, yeah, they, they kept giving it to me. <laughs> what, what, what you said right now is so yeah. important because a lot of times people went, I, I've known, um, people that have gone on medication have had a, a diagnosis, let's say like depression or anxiety, have given, been given medication for that, mm -hmm. but then end up discovering they are is bi bipolar. So then mm -hmm. all the time, the medication that was being used for this part of the bipolar was just not the right fit. And a lot of times people just give up because they just, you know, think that there's no hope, but the reality is you kind of have to keep on searching to figure out one, what is the right diagnosis, right? And two, what is the right medication or therapy or whatever treatment for that diagnosis, correct? Correct. Yeah. And I think what, what I would say now looking back is that, and I would say this to anybody listening, is that if you begin to have very concerning symptoms or, or symptoms that concern you when you start a medication, reach out to your doctor or psychiatrist immediately. Um, and what happened to me is I did start having very concerning symptoms. I started to have suicidal ideation, which I had never had before. And it would just kind of pop into my mind. It wasn't even like I was ruminating and feeling depressed and then, you know, got there. It was literally like I would be fine one minute and the next minute I'm planning my suicide. It was bizarre. And also my moods were all over the place. But because I'm a, th I, you know, I had this idea of like, I have to have it together. I'm a therapist. I'm a mom. I, you know, I'm successful. Like I should not be having these symptoms. And so I just kept minimizing them, you know, being like, okay, whatever, like I can get through this. I'll, you know, I'm just, I'll just put that to the side. It's okay. And it just got worse and worse um, until, um, yeah, it got so bad that I, I ended up trying to harm myself. 
So for you, do you believe that the fact that you were a therapist, that you felt like you had to have it together because of the of what you did for a living, uh, that it was better to just de- kind of put it, uh, have denial about the reality of your situation? Yeah. 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 I, it was, I, and I, I encounter a lot of um, health professionals, mental health, yes, but even other health professionals um, who, you know, say a similar thing to me, which is that um, they feel like they, you know, like I shouldn't even be in therapy. I have all these tools. I have all these skills. Why am I here? Like I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't need to be here. And so there's this extra shame that we as, as um, you know, helpers. Mental health, can really prof- feel. especially as mental yeah. health professionals. Yeah. I, I, I can see that because it, but at the same time, then you think, doesn't a doctor end up getting sick at some point and end up having to go and get looked at for a wound or for something? It's not a, like all of a sudden a medical doctor, like, you know, would also need to go seek help for their own physical health needs. Why is it that there's such a stigma about then the mental health professionals may be needing also therapy, right? Like it's not right. much different, Right. Right, right. And I, I think the part of it is, is uh, historical, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, psychology in its roots um, began, was, was very, uh, in my opinion, um, was not a feminist practice. It was very patriarchal. It was um, very focused. I mean, a lot of Freud's work, for example, was focused on young women and, and the kind of diagnosis of hysteria and what does that mean? And, and ultimately, as we've moved through the years and through people, you know, practicing psychology and, and I actually have a degree in social work, bringing those two together. Now we start, we're really beginning to understand, like, it's not, it's not like somebody has a moral or ethical issue and that's why they have mental health problems. You know, if they would just get it together that, you know, they just need to work harder. And that's a, a message that I think many people, many professionals in our society get. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there is a stigma attached to mental health and especially to substance use. Mm. I think depression and anxiety are becoming more mainstream. That's sort of more accepted. Like you say, I have depression, you know, celebrities are coming out as depressed, anxious, and there's not as much of a stigma as there used to be. However, we still struggle, I think, with people who are using substances. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and there is hard science and so much science now about the neurochemistry of, of that dis-ease and that mm-hmm. literally your brain changes. And it's not that you're not tough enough or you're not you know, moral enough to stop. It's, it's truly something happening in the brain, just as a bipolar or schizophrenia or PTSD or other diagnoses are as well. Yes. Oh, thank you for, for saying that because yeah, there you're right. There's so much judgment, right. Around all these, um, different, uh, you know, mental, um, what do you say? Mental disorders, mental illness, mental say, health, mental health issues, mental health. Is I that the right say, word? Um, yeah, I usually say mental health condition. Condition. Thank you. That, yeah, because conditions you know what can change. Con- <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, because sometimes when there's like, yeah, we say disorder. Yeah, that's why I wanted to check. Like there's nowadays, of course, and this is something we can also dive into now, that aspect of words and titles and 
and so forth and how one little thing can completely come off the wrong way like me saying mental disorder mental so with that let's then jump into chapter two no section two of your book part two which is now earlier on in your now closer now in time of Mm -hmm. when you wrote the book of other things that then started to come up in life which it was you being able to help your child in -hmm. their own um issues and and processes of their own identity as well as their own um uh also mental uh conditions at that moment so Mm -hmm. let's let's talk about a little bit about that please yeah so in part two um i had i had stabilized quite a bit um and i i was getting stable around the time that my um daughter then daughter um was entering adolescence starting puberty and um kind of in this interesting simultaneous like choreography i was getting better and she started really struggling and so um she she was in seventh grade she was 12 years old and she started um restricting her food and that was the first time i found out that there were were problems going on that i wasn't even aware of you know and it wasn't because i mean i think i thought i was just like uh, preoccupied by life and not paying attention but looking back there there, she covered it up, you know, she wasn't very uh, forthcoming. And so we, I took that on and we dealt with that and got her into therapy and things got better. And then um, I got called to the school by the school counselor to find out that my daughter had been self-harming and, and really was disclosing concerning thoughts. And so she um, ultimately was assessed in the emergency room for a 5150 and, and was 5150'd at a psychiatric hospital. Um, and so we were working through that. We were working through that. She came home um, th- and things just were really difficult. And, and I think I struggled with a lot of like self-doubt and shame. Like, how is this my fault? You know, where, where, where is this my fault? Because I feel like it is my fault. Either that I passed on the genetics of, of a mood disorder depression and anxiety or bipolar, it wasn't clear. Mm-hmm. Um, or I um, somehow I did this behaviorally, maybe she saw me depressed. And so it, it hurt her in some way. Or because she, you know, she was a very high energy and very emotional child who had trouble regulating her emotion. And so it was like, well, did I respond wrong to her? Did I somehow traumatize her? And this is her kind of her response. So I had all that happening within me. And while I was like, I need to help my child. And so I, you know, was, I was helping her. And then, um, you know, then things just continued to not be good in our, in our world. That, yeah. And it, and that, that part two, of course, is just a whole other added part of that even grief component. Cause then it's also reliving your own experience too, through her yeah. for yourself. And then how did you toil with the decision of when do you tell your child? Because your children did not know what you had gone through. Um, So when you see that your child is struggling in similar ways that you had, at what point do you decide how much do I tell her? Because she's at that moment, she she was really young. At what point do I tell her that I've gone through something similar? 
Did mm-hmm. how how was that? Um, yeah, commotion within you. <laughs> you know that conversation. Tell me about. Tell us about that. Yeah, I I really I really wanted to tell her, and at the same time, I didn't know. I mean, I'm a therapist, but I, at the time I was really working only with adults. Mm -hmm. And so my focus wasn't on, um, children as much. And so, you know, I know child development and I know what's generally appropriate, but I, I really struggled with that. And I think, um, I wanted to, and I waited, I waited until the timing felt right. I waited until she was stable. And (laughs) to me, it was going to be this really big deal. Like, she was going to have this big reaction and we were maybe going to bond and it was going to be this big thing. And I told her and she was like, hmm, okay. And then like, I want to get tickets to this fallout boy concert. It was like, wait, wait a second. I just like disclosed all of this to you and that's your response. But I just went with it because I, I realized like it's, I'm really focused on my own process, but she's focused on hers. And and so this isn't making the impact I suspected that it would. <laughs> Even though you thought, oh, she will now ident- know that I can actually truly relate to her. Because even I was going to say that as a therapist, do your patients know that you've been through? Well, now, of course, they know because they see the book. But <laughs> prior to the, your book, did your patients know that you had been through similar things? And is that relatability something that then they feel, okay, she knows, like truly knows what I'm going through. And is that then something that connects you deeper to your, to your uh, clients, mm-hmm. to patients, to then be able to help them? Does that make sense? And then the same that's, way, that's what that, I'm assuming that that's yeah. what you thought was going to happen then right. with your daughter. But at that time, yeah, um, was that with Hannah at that moment, Hannah, and we'll mm-hmm. kind of go yeah. a little bit we'll talk a little bit about the other part but is that what you thought yes yeah yeah and and to the question about my clients yeah i i actually don't it, i i think all but one of my clients even knows that this book is out um and it was because she researched me she she found me on wherever psychology today maybe and then she just kind of researched me online and saw that this was before my book was released, um, but she saw kind of my bio and what the book was about. And so she knows. Um, but we had a conversation and I said, you know, you can ask me about anything that's in the book or, it, you know, if you're concerned about something that's going, you feel like is going to interfere in our therapy, I really want to know. And, and if you have thoughts or feelings about what you have read in my book, if you choose to read it, I want to know because that's, that's part of our relationship. But just know that I'm going to be pretty boundaried about kind of getting deep into conversations about my experience or getting into what I'm doing presently. Like, this is about you. This is your therapy. And, and I'm glad that you appreciate that we, you know, you can relate to me and like, yes, we have that connection, but really I, you know, this is about you. The, and so the other ways that I, um, just really quick to answer your question that I work with clients who don't know is that I often, I will, um, well, one thing is that, you know, I, I have clients who talk about suicide quite a bit and I, there's something about when, when you start talking about these really scary topics, scary for a lot of people to hear. Um, and your therapist is like, yeah. And like, 
rounded and like, please, you know, yeah, I want to know more. And yeah, like that makes sense. Yeah, you want your pain to end. Of course, of course. Having that validating approach rather than, oh my God, let's make a safety plan. And like young, I actually supervise young therapists. And um, this is something we talk about a lot. This is one of their greatest fears is that their client's going to bring up suicide and they're not going to know what to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I feel like that, just that communicates to them that I, I know something, I know something about this. And, and that they don't even have to know what I know, but just that feeling of like, okay, she gets it. I don't know why she gets it, but she gets it. Mm -hmm. Now did that she gets it also then translate afterwards with your uh, daughter at that time? You know, not, not not I don't think so. Um, I think, I think that, uh, I think there's just been so much trauma and upheaval in, um, in who now goes by Avery yes, in Avery's yes, life. We can now go ahead yeah. and transition. Let's, tra- let's yeah, transition yeah. as we talk okay. about transitions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, so my daughter kind of amidst the mental health crises and then um, a trauma that happened in our family to Avery specifically um, amidst all of that, Avery also began exploring his gender and his gender identity. And throughout this process, there was just so much happening that it seemed as if the gender identity exploration was caused by either the mental health conditions or or the trauma. And so it was very difficult for me to separate out, like, what is happening here? Like, is it my my kids traumatized and so that's why they want to be a boy is it is it just a normal thing that you know was automatically going to happen to them and this is just their path and so um it was a real struggle for me to like as a mother who talk about grief you know yes i was just gonna say because that's that's one thing too when you've already set up the idea of what it is you thought your life was going to be with a daughter and a son, which you have your youngest is a son. Um, And then now you have two sons. So it's like, how do you then cope with that in your mind? Right. So that's even just a a grief there within. So go ahead and talk about that. Yeah. And I think um, I, I actually wrote an article on this that's going to be published in the Gay and Lesbian Review. Um, I don't know the publication date, but um, it will be coming out at some point. And it's, it is called um, What I Wish I Had Known About um, My Gender Fluid Child. Um, or wish uh, something like that. Wish, <laughs> I wish I had known how to parent my gender fluid child. And basically it talks about my experience, which is that I felt guilty for having grief because I wanted to be affirming. I wanted, you know, I, I very much support people living in their, um, the gender that they feel that they are. And, and I was like, oh my God, no, this is, how can you change you? Like what it is? So it was just this very conflictual feeling. And then I felt like, oh my God, maybe I'm transphobic. 
Um, that's never been something I am or have wanted to be. And so it just brought up all of these really difficult feelings. And so I didn't reach out or really talk to other parents going through the same thing. I just felt like they're going to judge me. Um, and what I've come to find out um, is that I would hope anyway that, that that other parents wouldn't and other parents would say, you know what? Yeah, this is part of the process and it's okay. It's okay that you're sad. It's okay that you're grieving. You don't want to be doing that with your child because that's not their role, but you want to be doing it because if you're pushing it down or just not acknowledging your grief, it's going to come back. It's going to come back when you least expected it, expect it. And it's going to be very, very difficult and traumatic and will, will also influence how you're relating to your child unconsciously. Mm. So um, what I would say to parents who have children who are either exploring their gender identity, who are gender fluid, or who um, move into choosing a specific gender, um, don't, don't judge yourself. One, you didn't do anything wrong. It's not because you did something that this is happening. And two, it's okay to be sad. They don't want to see their their childhood pictures displayed in the house. So yeah, take them down, but don't get rid of them. Keep them for you because this is a person you knew. These are memories that you have and that you can cherish. It doesn't have to be like, okay, I, I erase that because those are yours. Mm -hmm. And I think the distinction is that we were not putting it on the child. We, in our family, those who need to grieve, we're, we're grieving that together. Uh, that is so important. And what you said about the aspect of the pictures, uh, I know of someone that had that situation and remember uh, her sharing that it was like she had to grieve the death of her, uh, I won't say that, I won't say which gender was before or after just yeah. to not make identifiable her, uh, this gender child to, and then to then, because it was basically the death of that gender and that person that had been born to then this new identity that was now going to be identified with as her child. So um, so there was that grieving component and continues to sometimes be. And she sometimes goes and looks at pictures of when her mm -hmm. child was a baby to kind of, you know, reminisce on the child she had. And of course is happy with the child she now has too and yes. loves, but it's that aspect of that duality of emotions that can come in just this one, you know, scenario. So um, thank you yeah. for sharing that. Anything yeah. else you want to touch upon on that subject? Well, it's interesting because um, as, as Avery has um, kind of grown and changed over the years. Avery's now 20, just turned 20. Um, uh, Avery has actually moved into, <laughs> so interesting. My kid is such a trail trailblazer. <laughs> Avery has decided that she doesn't care. She says, call me she, call me he. People, I confuse people all the time because sometimes I dress like a guy and I've taken some testosterone, so I have some male features, but I still have my female features. And some days I want to wear makeup and earrings and a dress. And mm -hmm. so I do. And people are constantly confused. Mm -hmm. And I like that because mm -hmm. it's a performance in a way. 
Like this isn't a, the, the essence of who I am ultimately isn't like a specific um, gender that is one stereotype or the other. I can kind of inhabit all of it mm-hmm. and it's fun. And I kind of like confusing people. It's like a, a commentary. Yeah. And I actually, as you're saying that as now as Avery, as an adult and in the book, there was that aspect that you were kind of like confused because Hannah had just told you that she identified as a he in the book. And then all of a sudden you saw her put, or him at that moment, wearing like pink something tutu or something like really mm-hmm. bright and dress or a dress and something. And you were kind of like confused. Was it for the Fallout Boy concert or something? I forget. There was something yeah. that in the book that then, and you're like, wait, I just thought he told me it's a he, like, and you were confused. <laughs> so I guess it, fluid would be the right word then yep. for Avery because of this. Um, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter what you call me. The essence is still who I, who I am is really the most important is, uh, is that is who this yeah, individual is. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I did feel like it was a death as well. And I, I think I don't feel that way as much now because I see a continuity. Like I see the through line of, and I think it helps that Avery is gender fluid and is kind of like less attached mm-hmm. because that helps me understand that, yeah, gender is a construct. Gender is a performance. It's something that we inhabit that, for some people is like, it's a cellular level. It's like, I am all boy that, or he, I am all man. That is who I am. But that's not who Avery is. Avery is a very fluid, creative person in, in his gender expression. And so, and, and he may decide later to go one way or the other, but it's like, now I understand this is who my child is. And so, yeah, I, I have, I have photos on my phone that sometimes I look at just because I miss, I miss that child. But I think we can all relate to that as parents, because I don't know anybody whose child turned out the way that their parents <laughs> thought they were going to. You know what I do when my friend, I'm so mad at my, my, I have teenagers and I'm so mad at yeah. them or something. I like, I go back and look at the pictures of when they were just so cute and yes. like so lit. And it's kind of that that you're what you're saying of like oh my gosh like but look how cute they were and they used to hug me and now they don't even hug me and they used to want to cuddle with me and now they don't all these things that we still grieve as a parent regardless of the (laughs) outcome of gender or whatever it's just like you said we are grieving that they it may not look parenting may not look the way we thought it was going to look like and our not, not, and also, I actually grieve more of even just how I am as a parent, more yeah. than even who they are as kids. I'm like, man, this is not, I did not think I was going to be a nagging parent. And mm-hmm. here I am nagging so much that it drives me insane, you know? So, so yeah, so I, you're, you're absolutely right. We all grieve in one shape or form in our, in our parenting life <laughs> um, role, I guess, would be the, the thing. So thank you for bringing that yeah. up. Now, Caitlin, let's talk then how people can, and by the way, everyone that's listening to this, you'll be able to go much deeper into all these different subjects that we've talked about. Uh, Caitlin's upbringing, growing up, the, the things that triggered your, uh, your um, hospitalization, parenting, then now parenting your, your child. 
and all these things in the book. So how can people get the book now that, yeah. that it's out? Yeah, so you can find it at any major bookseller, but I would love it if um, you would buy the book directly from me. And you can, um, there's a tab on my website in the menu called buy okay. um, and go to that tab and you can order the book directly from me and I will ship it to you. Um, that, you know, that helps me as an author um, because any other major bookseller, they are getting some of my money and right. go straight that's, to you. you know, okay. whatever, like we're, we're a capitalist society and I accept that. And it would be nice to kind of be able to own some of the, the proceeds from my book. Absolutely. And especially because you're doing the legwork right now. You're here on yes. this podcast you're getting. So anybody listening to this podcast, you're going to go straight to the website link that I'm putting below in the profile notes, caitlinbillings.com. And on there, go to buy and you will buy the book directly from there yes. rather than searching anywhere else. So uh, is there anything I did not ask you that you would want to tell the readers either regarding grief or mental health or trauma that you want to leave them with? Any any nuggets that you want to yeah, leave? Yeah, I think the nugget for me would be if if you're a person who believes that you should have it all together or you shouldn't um, suffer in any way that, um, you know, you, sh you need to be perfect because perfection is a myth that exists in our society, that you talk to somebody, that you seek help, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. And in fact, can be preventative. Um, you know, if I had sought therapy earlier, I don't know that I would have ended up hospitalized. You know, I, there may have been a way to manage through it that, that looked different. Um, it didn't have to be so extreme necessarily. And so I just urge people like, contact a therapist. If you need somebody to talk to, it's confidential, um, it's private, and they're going to get it. They're, <laughs> you know, they're really going to get it. And, and if they don't get it, find, find a different one. It's okay to interview a couple of therapists to find the right fit. Perfect. Thank you yeah. once again, Caitlin Billings here on the podcast. And again, In Our Blood is out for you to purchase and straight from the website. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.